Hey everybody, it's Panina. Before we get started today, I want to ask you all to tell people about this podcast. I've been really lucky to have some amazing people on the show, and I can't wait to share even more. And I want more listeners to hear about our inspiring guests. So share the podcast with everyone you know. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 25for25podcast. That's the number, not the word. Like us on our Facebook page. If you're not into social media, send your friends a text. If your friends are Amish, write out a transcript for them. Also, super important, rate and review 25 for 25 on Apple and Spotify. It takes two seconds and makes a big difference. All right, spiel over. Let's do this thing. My name is Faelita Hicks, and I am 34. I'll be 35 in October. Happy birthday. Thank you. This is 25 for 25. I'm Panina Beatty, and yes, I am 25 years old. 25 and a half, to be more specific. And I gotta say, I was not expecting my 25 to look like this, what with graduating college straight into a global pandemic. At times, it's really frustrating to feel like I was just about to spread my wings and then the world stopped turning. Before the pandemic, I was putting out episodes of this podcast on a regular weekly basis. After lockdown, my ability to do anything more than the bare minimum seriously deflated, as I'm sure it did for many of us. But self-care, I think that's what it's all about, and I had to forgive myself. So I learned to ask for help. I'm happy to announce, in addition to the 25 for 25 team, Sydney Weiser. She's a senior at Marymount College studying musical theater and directing. She's been so helpful, so everybody give her a round of applause. I don't care if you're in public. Just do it. She deserves. Like many, I found new humility during these times. Having a roof over my head and financial stability is more important than ever. If you want to talk about feeling humbled, let's talk about my guest. Felita Hicks has become a new inspiration to me. From their activism to their writing, Felita's work ethic and passion is something I emulate. Their book of poetry, Hoodwitch, came out last year and has been awarded many prizes, including the Lambda Literary Award for Bisexual Poetry. Here's a clip of Felita's spoken word album, Onyx, which came out last year. The tentless women here, mind my pockets, Task me for my thick hide and tight cunts. Praise my gauze trapped orgasms. Envy me the herd of men who climb up out of me. Crawl into the beds of my boys and sickle my sons with their thirst. Scrape me of my contour and throw what's left of my body into their mirrors. Stitch my name into the roofs of their mouths so they too can hashtag drip authentic power. Praise me for my discounts on IG. But disbelieve my lack of security. I'm lit. Oil in their pipes. I know for out of fashion with the times, they don't love me as much as they love the way I am when I am smoking. Tragedy and trauma have fueled Felita's work and their activism. Felita says they know extreme joy because they've experienced extreme pain. Here's Felita Hicks on 25. False pain. Shadow dip themselves in my hustle and use my God-given name in vain. 2009 and 2010 were uh, 
life-changing upending years for me um I was like hmm, that's interesting yeah I I guess um can you walk me through that that story so January 2010 um my fiance not my January 2010 my friend Gabrielle Boulaine dies um of uh cancer she found out in October 2009 and was dead by January so that was itself like starting off the new year with that death was already kind of like what is going on um and then April just a few months later my fiance died um he had uh encephalitis which is something that he had had since he was like eight years old and he always said you're never going to make it to this age and you're never going to make it to this age and you know though he didn't make it to the last age um but we had been together for several years several weeks after he died i was driving from austin to san marcos my car died on the side of the road and a cop comes over asking me if i need help i'm like no i think the car is just the gas gauge something messed with that and so like, well let me see your id and i was like i have nothing to hide and you know i'm young and i don't, I don't know that you know i don't have to give him my id i'm legally parked there's no reason for him to ask me for my id but he did and i gave it to him I had a warrant for a check that I had written. <laughs> it was a $25 check to HEB, which is a grocery store here in Texas. Um, and it had bounced. And so it was seen as a theft by check. I was supposed to go to court, but as a college student, and I just graduated, sometimes college students just don't have an address. We are everywhere and anywhere that we can lay our head. And I was one of those people. I was always housing insecure. So I definitely don't remember getting that message. And I never went to court. So the official reason why I got arrested was for a failure to appear in court. I sat in jail for 45 days before I saw a judge, um, before I saw an attorney. 45 days for $25 worth of groceries and hundreds of dollars in court fees and fines. Um, when I got out, <laughs> I automatically, I had applied to get into grad school. And so like I got out and I got into grad school and I had to take one final class so I could graduate, so I could start the graduate program. I had about a month, one month to finish that last class because I got arrested on May 2nd, which was like the day of the final and I needed the final to pass. So I had to take the whole class over in one month, finish the class, graduate, so I could start grad school in August. And, um, going from being in jail and having lost my fiance and lost my friend and all the things that happened in the first part of 2010 to sitting in a room full of people who are like, Oh, I spent the summer in Paris. Oh, like, you know, I, I have read this, that, and the third. And like, you know, I'm the editor of that. I'm like, I'm, I got out of jail. <laughs> um, was, was kind of, you know, uh, kind of crazy, honestly. And, uh, yeah, it was a crazy year. Um, I think the only thing that saved me for, uh, I think that that kind of period of time uh, is like I, I became 25 in October that year. And then in 2011 for the summer, <laughs> I sold everything I uh, owned at the time. So I had about $500, which is how much I, <laughs> everything I owned was only five worth $500 apparently. Um, and I went on a road trip. I toured from San Marcos, Texas to New York. I did go to California. I did go to uh, Arizona and um, New Mexico. I did 27 cities in three months on the road. 
doing poetry events, just going to open mics and shows. And it was kind of um, cleansing spiritually and mentally to just kind of be in the wind for a little bit. And it made me feel a lot bolder when I came back to the MFA program be like, listen here, you stuck up people. <laughs> <laughs> I have ridden the railways. I have sat on the Greyhound buses. I do not care about your perfectly edited piece. <laughs> Where's the heart? Uh, so it, the, the journey helped me to feel better about myself and about being a writer and what my opinion of, of work is. You know, something that I think about a lot, I think about, you know, my past and I think about what ifs a lot. And it's the kind of thinking about what ifs that I'm like, I know I shouldn't be, you know, speculating, but really though, what if I didn't have to go through that trauma? Is that something that you've thought about? I mean, I don't know if I would have continually pushed to be a writer if I hadn't had my friend tell me literally a month before she died that I can't waste my fucking time to do the thing I'm supposed to do. Like if she hadn't told me that to my face while smoking a cigarette and then be dead a month later, like, I don't know if I would have pushed as hard, right? Because she wanted to do what I'm doing. I don't know if, um, I don't know if I would be a writer right now. Uh, if my fiance was still alive, right? My fiance had a really hard time with, um, with my queer identity, had a hard time with my sexuality. I'm pansexual. I am open sexually and I came like that's when I met him I was already like a swinger I was already in that community and I tried to introduce him to that community it was really hard for him so I had to make myself smaller in our relationship um he wanted to get married and talked about me <laughs> teaching writing at a high school and I do not want to teach. I've never, like, I like doing workshops. I like doing talks, but I don't want to worry about your homework. I don't care. <laughs> uh, I don't want to have to deal with the bureaucracy of all that stuff, right? I could possibly see a college position, but, like, there's so many people who get so many feelings hurt. <laughs> and... I, you know, I just, I, 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 that wasn't what my original vision for myself was. And I was changing my vision of what I wanted to be and what I wanted to do to fit his desires and his needs. And so um, I have a very complicated relationship with that. Like what I would have had kids by now would have been teaching at a high school for a couple of years. I would have probably had a house and a car Instead, I do not have a car. I live in an apartment. I, you know, have, I'm a birth parent. Um, I did have, give birth to a child that's biologically mine. That child uh, lives with their adoptive parents in Chicago. But I don't, I don't raise a child myself and I don't want to raise a child myself. And I can say that and be happy with it. And there's not really anyone who wants to push me about, where's the baby? Nope, no baby. Shop is closed. <laughs> how has your voice changed so um I didn't think I was smart enough to get a master's degree in creative writing I didn't think I was smart enough to get a master's degree so I was already I'm a first generation college student the idea of getting a master's degree is just overwhelming no one else in my family has ever done it 
I'm going to go and learn about all these people who no one's ever heard of. And I'm going to get this education that no one else has ever had in my family before. Um, and I was really excited about that idea because I wanted it to make me a better writer. But the program that I was in at the time was more focused on making you prepared for a job or position teaching somewhere, but not necessarily the creative aspect. So what I ended up experiencing for those first two years in that MFA program was my voice that I had, my my tics and, you know, my preference for voice, my preference for language, my lexicon got smashed <laughs> and suffocated in that program to the point where I dropped out of the program and I did not graduate from that program. And I spent many years not writing because I just felt, I felt powerless. I felt like everything I did was trash. Um, that being said, uh, there are times now that I'll remember a poem I wrote 10 years ago and I'll pull that thing up and I'm like, I was on the right track. <laughs> I was on the right track. And, um, so being 25, like, it, if anything, like, what it, what I know now is that there was something real that was happening in me organically a decade ago. And I have to, I have to pull back on it. I have to go back to that. What was that organic moment for me and my, orga my organic language um, before they took it from me? So... It's definitely when you find... Uh, uh, your spark, whatever that means, or, or one of your sparks, it totally fits into your life. Um, so naturally, it's almost like, how did I miss this for that meant for that long? No, I mean, there's, I feel like you have to, it was definitely like a journey. I stopped. I stopped my journey. There's a distinct time in my life in the last decade where it's, it's evident that I stopped. I stopped everything in 2000. And 13, after I came back, after the baby was born, I stopped until 2016. And then I really didn't start picking my life back up as an artist until 2017. And you can see the marked changes in my career and my publishing, everything. You can see it from like that big old gap of time that I was just like, I give up. I'd love to hear one of your poems if you can read them for me, for us. Okay. But over girl, 1992, Gremlins, somewhere Carolina, where I first learned to collect dirt, the graveyard, surging with the effigies of women forgotten or drowned by the strange tide of hours flooding their small and empty beds, blistered with the ghosts of their men trapezing through the yard and the shoulders of their children, where the army wives were hungry for large and hard harbors or homes with cornerstones anything permanent, where mama leaned against the double wide and S-posed her back, where chain linked to her homegirls, she posted up against the slim carcass of the trailer. She roach smoked while she was out getting her babies baptized in North Carolina's largest pool of spousal ejection, Fort Bragg, where scoops of women cocked back their glorious rounds and checked their spines in a honeycomb of fatigued men, where us grassy kids trained muddy snapping turtles to be combat ready, chucking grenade-shaped pine cones over concrete lots and touching each other under our houses. 
back when I never knew what sort of work Mama did, but I did know that whatever it was required, she unzipped her skin at the end of the day and pour a cool cigarette between the chips of her fingers to let steam run through her dank lips up and out the facade of a clear blue sky when she was shady, just like the panther stalking up the plank of her calf and digging into her plump waist. When I learned to say daddy, whenever she said daddy, when his face switched texture and tone depending on the shape of the moon, when I learned it was only a phase, listening to the shallow waves tapping against her bedroom door whenever my father finally found his keys, whenever my mama remembered what love tasted like, when it wasn't salted with the solitary years of being a war's wife, back when my mama said, I was too young to recognize danger, when danger followed, when I climbed to the couch and tried to revive her late in the morning, I tried to catfish her animal onto a paper plate or into a bowl or something, because we were hungry. When danger fed my sisters and I cocoa puffs and bologna sandwiches and count down to the days, damn it, until we finally got about her house and went on and raised up little gremlins of our own. So this poem is written about um, when I was younger. I was about five, six years old at this time, uh, going on seven. But my mother, she had me when she was 17. So I got to experience the young mom who has three kids by the time she's 25. And the mom who wants to go out and party with her girls, but she's got kids at home, right? Um, my dad was in the military at this time, so he was constantly coming and going. We were constantly living on, um, on, uh, wow, wow, wow. What are those called? Where people, families, Army of, base? thank you. <laughs> Army base. Like I've, all I've had today is this, I haven't even had breakfast and I know it's five o'clock here, but I haven't had breakfast yet because that's my life. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, <laughs> on an army base. And so uh, this one is in particular about one in Carolina. Fort Bragg was super muddy. We stayed inside of a, um, uh, a trailer park and um, we were left to our own devices very often. We often had our trailer completely packed with roaches to the point where you could hear them in the walls or they would drop <laughs> from the roof often. Oof. Right. Um, it was pretty for me, it was pretty traumatizing as a kid, but it was just, you know, that's where we were. That's where we lived. There's a part where I talk about the panther on my mom's leg. And I, I mean, a literal outfit. There's a photo somewhere of her and her homegirls all posing in front of this trailer. And they're like all dressed up, ready to go out. And all the kids are dirty. <laughs> and we're just all standing in front of them like, yeah, we just got done playing in the mud. And they're all like dressed up, ready to go. And that like that that difference between them this is when my mom was smoking it was it was a time where um i think my mother doesn't call us mistakes and she you know she lets us know that she loves us but one of my decisions you know one of the reasons why i made my decision about my own kid um was i never wanted that child to look me in the face and see me thinking of a life i could have had if it weren't for them Right. I didn't want to ever look at my child like that the way that I was looked at where I love you, but also I could have had this whole other life. And, you know, that's not the only reason why I made my decision that I made, but, you know, this is part of it, understanding what it means intrinsically to raise a child, to have to sacrifice 
anything that you want and what that can mean long term for the child. Uh, I love my sisters, but I'm the only one who went to college. I'm the only one who graduated from college. I'm the only one who graduated from high school traditionally, except for the one, you know, I have three younger sisters, except for the very youngest one. Um, And I'm the only one who's traveled out of the country. I'm the only one who's, you know, done a lot in our family. And I think that has everything to do with how we were raised. What was your relationship with your mother like when you were 25? <laughs> um, so when I was arrested that in 2010, um, the reason why I stayed in jail for 45 days, my bail was set at $600. It would have cost $60 to the bail bondsman to get me out of jail. And my mother did not want to pay that. In a letter, she stated that um, she had never been to jail herself. Her husband had never been to jail. Um, and that this was a lesson I needed to learn about taking responsibility for my mistakes. And that was actually, um, and I've told her this. I've told her, I was like, I love you, but I will never depend on you for anything again. Right. If if there's if there's anything that I would have to depend on you, I'm going to find it any other way. I would rather. Get online and beg <laughs> for people to support me, which I did have to do a couple of years ago, like, you know, for donations so I could pay rent. Then call you. Because you thought that that was the best course of action for me. You know, it hadn't even been a month since my fiance died and I was having a bad year and that, you know. That's <laughs> not great. And it costs $600 for $25. And that's just for bail. That's not counting the court fees. That's not counting any attorney fees. If I had had an attorney, I had a court appointed attorney that I talked to for about 15 minutes before the judgment was passed on me. Right. A, a real attorney would have spent time to, you know, fight my case appropriately and to do the research on that case. Um, that never happened for me. Um, and it impacted my life so much that 10 years later, um, you know, I'm an activist specifically for pretrial incarceration because I know what even a couple of weeks in jail can do to you mentally and emotionally and spiritually, you know, so, and that's a lesson I learned because of a decision that my mother made in tandem. I got punished for not having enough money. Who... <laughs> What were those 45 days like? Um, so that is the subject of my book that I'm currently working on. Um, I've been trying to find many different ways to express what that time is like. There's an uncertainty that comes with that, that every day of when you're pretrial, especially any day could be the day you go home but you don't know what day it is that you'll go home. So every day you wake up hoping, and then you have to try to like figure out the schedule of the people who are coming and giving you food or giving medicine or whatever it is their schedule is um, so that you could try to pinpoint like, okay, when people go to court, they normally pick them up by this time. And if they haven't picked anyone up by this time, then no one's going to court. But like trying to figure out what that schedule is so that you can kind of set your expectations up for the day, right? Um, 
I had been picked up in my car and everything I owned was in that car because I was homeless at the time that I did go to jail. I was staying at friends' houses and things like that, but I, I didn't have a home. Everything I owned was in the car and in a storage unit. And that car sat on the side of the road for 40 days. I got out at 45 days. At 40 days, they towed it and it got put inside of a, of a tow place. Um, and I would have to pay as much as I paid for the car to get the car out. But they like I had to beg them to give me my stuff. I was like, can I please have the bag? Can I please have the jacket at least that's in the backseat? Can I please have this? I have no clothes. Can I have some of my clothes? Because they were willing to sell all that stuff. So like the the uncertainty of knowing when you were gonna leave. Um to be honest, I held the same opinion of people who uh I, I held the same opinion that most people hold without knowing that they hold this opinion. That if you go to jail and you stay in jail for any period of time, you deserve to be there or you have at least done something worthy of being there. Right. You may not deserve it, but you've at least something went wrong. You didn't follow protocol. You were uh, aggressive. You did something wrong on your side that would put you in there. I spent most of my time, especially that first week, just being in like, how? What did I do wrong? How? I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't loud. I did what I was supposed to. Like, you know, I just I was broke and I was scared. How? Like did I end up here? And so it was a lesson. It was a a lesson in humility for sure. Um, I got to know some of the people who had been in there for longer and, uh, being in the women's side, there are lots of them who talk about their families and their kids, right? Women are the primary caretakers in most low income communities. And so if you send a woman to jail, you're probably putting, children directly at risk they're probably going to end up in the system um, because that's just the demographics when you're in a low-income family there aren't a lot of males taking responsibility and if they are it's probably not something you want them to do um, there's a lot of trauma everyone I met in there was full of trauma and um, this was something that was like a stop in their long life of trauma. And so uh, it changed me to be able to know those people face-to-face, to hear them, to see them, and to get humble and to understand how even me going to college, I had started to lean into that elitist thinking. I'm too smart to be here. I'm too good to be here. I've worked hard. I don't deserve to be here. Like, why not? So, yeah. It's interesting. It's not comparable to your experience being in jail, but the not knowing and the uncertainty is so relevant right now. How did you deal with that? I didn't do well. It it is just a fraction. It's really hard for um I have a lot of books here. I had like I call them trashy romance novels, which I'm a okay with because I love trashy vampire romance novels. Like I'm okay with trashy novels. Um but the problem with trashy novels is I go through them very quickly. 
And so there were only um, a couple of trashy novels, a lot of uh, church literature. And what that does to the spirit and to the mind is I'm not necessarily, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here. I am surrounded by only messages from the Christian God and from Christians. And I'm, you know, my option is the Bible or like, you know, this pamphlet here. And so it does put extra, um, feelings of um guilt guiltiness and not like not just like oh I did that crime but like my life is bad because I'm bad type guiltiness which is unnecessary and and hurtful um I didn't cut my I didn't cut myself but I did try to rub my skin off uh on my on my wrist and it was kind of like a nervous gesture kind of um a repetitive thing that could be done without stop. I asked for, um, I think I was just trying to get ibuprofen because I had cramps and my cramps are historically bad. Um, I went in, I was completely sober and I didn't want to be completely sober. And so like, there were a lot of, when I'm not completely sober, I want to act out, but I, I, don't want to act out like I don't want I don't want people to see me lose it because if people see me lose it I'm going to end up in solitary or I'm going to end up being treated even worse but the like me trying to tell myself not to lose it thing um the lights never really go out while you're in there uh so you can't really sleep in darkness it's always but cold always there's always only one blanket if there is a blanket like it's it's not, you don't get any rest for weeks and months at a time. There's no way to rest while you're in there. So if you know anything about like your mind, <laughs> I'm on a weird sleeping schedule right now. Like I go to bed at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. and wake up in the afternoon and I have to tell myself, look, if you want to talk to people during the day, got to go to bed at a good time. Yeah. So I think one thing I I do want to point out is that when you spend time in jail, uh, it's not the same as prison, right? And it's not the same as going to a detention center. At least as um, most people who go to jail who are residents of the U.S. um, at least know that they all have a right to fight back. They at least have some sort of context. They can probably maybe speak the the English language and communicate and understand somewhat of what the process is supposed to be, even if they know the process isn't working for them. Um, not everybody, like there are lots of people in detention centers who definitely speak English and definitely know the system and definitely know what's wrong. But there are also a lot of people who do not know what's happening to them. And if you can imagine like going from having a house, a job you go to, uh, you know, your kids, they're in school or, you know, you got stuff you have to do every day and then suddenly being ripped out of like your house while you're watching TV or suddenly being ripped out of your school, like, you know, while you're walking in between classes, like the uh, the disruption of your life and then spending time in a space where you have no privacy. You know, you probably only have what you're wearing and that's it. There's not going to be a change. That's it. Like, you know, there's uh, a sense of everyone's kind of dazed, right? And um, 
So to, you, your life gets cut in half and you're like, what happened? How did I get here? And everybody's asking the same questions and everybody's just kind of what? And it's, I, it is a lot like what's happening right now. I think that people are, if you can't even stay in your house for a month or so, what makes you think that people who are in solitary are going to act any better? And I say act, right? Because there's a certain way they want you to act while you're inside to get, you know, good favors. Or they want you to do certain things for them in order for you to be treated like a human while you're in jail or prison. But, like, you know, if you don't like this, why do we put this on people who are in jail or in prison for things like less than four ounces of marijuana? Sitting in solitary for, (laughs) you know. This is hard for a lot of people, but if you're having a problem with this, what makes you think jail is any better? So. When did you start being active in uh, social justice and activism? Um, 2018, I think it's the first time I did any sort of testimony in public. 2019 is when I joined Mono Amiga. Um, I did a couple of, you know, testimonials about my experience in the Hayes County Jail, which is where I live at, the county jail where I live at. Um, working with them, I learned a lot about uh, just the impact of even the county jail on the larger system, especially here in Texas. I started uh, learning more about policy and understanding that, like, I don't have to have a law degree to be able to read and interpret policy and to suggest new policy. Um, The importance of telling a story. I've always been a writer, but I learned through my work with Mano Amiga and with the other organizations like Detention Watch Network, uh, Texas Criminal Justice Coalition, uh, uh, Vera Institute of Social Justice, I learned the importance of a story in a great campaign for actual policy change. And it just, I don't know why it just dawned on me at this point in time in my age, but like it just dawned on me like, hey, this is literally how policy happens. People say this shit sucks. I don't know if I'm allowed to say curse words. This mess. Nobody's okay. fucking us. <laughs> this, shit, this shit sucks and I don't like it. And do you like it? No, you don't like it either. Let's fix it, right? Even the fucking, the way that our country was started was like, I don't like it. I don't like it. Fuck this tea. I don't give... <laughs> I, I Look, I'm going to get a gun, and I'm going to take what I want, and this is going to be my new place, and that I'm taking this right here. This part's mine. That's how this country got started. And they made up their own list of rules, and like they that those rules, the Constitution, is not created with uh, black people in mind not created with women in mind it's not created with queer people in mind like <laughs> my personal theory is that there's like a lot of queer people out there like i think that <laughs> we didn't just start showing up we, we just started talking no, about it out not. loud but i you know i'm not gonna say that none of them were queer i think my personal opinion is that more than likely somebody was queer on that on that on that uh there but statistics <laughs> the statistics don't <laughs> i was like somebody one of y'all but uh <laughs> But the idea was it none of that was meant for majority of what the country is now. The 
and and I and I feel com- I feel kind of confident about saying that I, I like underrepresented more than minority. I feel like there are more underrepresented populations and that we make up the majority when you put all the underrepresented together. Um that constitution was not created for us and that there are some things that need to get refurbished in that thing. But understanding that that I have that power, I personally have that power. I spent most of my life believing that the law was the law and there's no way to change it. There's just no way to change it. It will always be this way. It's it's always been this way and it will always be that way. And now I'm in, <laughs> here I am and I'm like, wait a minute. I can create new policy. We're working on new policy for the state of Texas. I'm a creative writer <laughs> who is, does not have a law degree. Uh, and I'm helping to brainstorm legislation specifically for pretrial uh, site and release is an ordinance that was uh, started here in San Marcos, Texas. We're not the first in the country. We're certainly not the first uh, anywhere site and release has existed in the state. But we're the first city in the state of Texas to mandate that officers must provide citation for all citation eligible offenses, you know, minus like potential violence to themselves or others or something like that. But that mandate, which limits the discretion of police officers, it's the first time that's been done in the state of Texas. Um, And it's not even that big. (laughs) We're like, just cite people who are citation eligible. That's it. That's all we want you to do. And they are losing their shit about it. They like absolutely cannot believe that we're saying you have to cite people who are citation eligible. I was like, why is this a problem? We spend millions of dollars in San Marcos and in Hayes County. We spend millions of dollars, I think almost $8 million a year, shipping people to other counties because we don't have enough room in our jails. There's a problem with that. If you don't have enough room, stop arresting everybody. If they're if they can only be charged for a fine for whatever it is, like a lot of people don't know that if you do something like stalking, that's a problem. But misdemeanor stalking is a fine only offense. It's only five hundred dollars. There's no jail time associated with with stalking. But the whole community is like, "What do you mean you won't arrest them?" It's a it was, well, technically, ma'am, the state of Texas has decided if you don't like this, please take it to your legislation. and Tell the legislators you don't like it. But cur- currently, it's a fine-only offense. Under four ounces of marijuana is a nonviolence offense. It is a misdemeanor in the state of Texas, and, you know, you can't. It's citation eligible. It's not putting you or anyone else at risk to have something that may or may not be hemp on you hemp is legal in the state of texas it may or may not be hemp it's going to cost the state more to try to test what may or may not be hemp to determine whether or not it's marijuana it's why are you making it complicated you're just wasting time money manpower it's it's um it's been crazy so we're working on legislation that will hopefully mandate that all officers in the state of Texas have to provide citations for all citation eligible offenses, um, including the ones that uh, Sandra Bland died for, um, which was a turn signal. It's a citation eligible offense. Uh, She went to jail and died for it. Uh, There are even George Floyd, $20 is a, a counterfeit 20, 
is uh, considered theft by check or something similar to that. And it's a fine only offense, I believe. It's either fine only or citation eligible in his state. I've been trying to pull up the legislation so I can like pinpoint it, but there are too many people dying for misdemeanors that are citation only or fine only because officers just want to wield their power. If you took out all of the citation only offenses and you took out all of the fine only offenses, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have a need for as many officers as they have. They wouldn't have a need for facilities as large as they have. Yeah. Because, you know, if you treat people like they're people <laughs> and you don't arrest everyone for something small, uh, and you don't try to escalate their charges. Eric Garner died for cigarettes. No need for it. No. I, you know, I, I think about, as I, I mentioned to you earlier, I, I'm Jewish. And the both systemic and systematic uh, racism and oppression, I mean, it's it's on par with with a concentration camp, with the Holocaust. I mean, you know... Just because the murders are spread out over more time and are done for all the ones that we actually see in the news and all the ones that actually end up reported, just imagine all the ones that are not and that aren't seen. It's the same thing with um, people who are sexually assaulted um, or people who are in domestic abuse situations, right? There is a lot of us who exist but not everybody wants to talk about everything that's ever happened to them. And um, I mean, even I want to say last month, there was a, an attorney general. I wish I can remember which state it was an attorney general hit a man with his car, killed him. Then tried to tell people he hit a deer. But the fact is the state's attorney general thought he could get away with it, which tells me, that there is someone else who has gotten away with it, right? There are other people who've gotten away with it. And so, like, if you if you think that these are, you know, the numbers tell me that in the history of the United States, um, black people especially, and I don't want to, like, you know, negate any indigenous people. We know that more indigenous people die per day are die, die on a more regular rate than even black people. But that's a that's a different conver it's a different conversation if you read um this is Natalia Diaz's uh Natalia Natalie Diaz's post colonial love poem. Mm. And in it she talks about uh how indigenous people are murdered by police even more than black people. We just don't hear about it very often. Because who wants to cover more indigenous people being killed by more colonized peoples? But yeah, I think I think if you look at the like history of the U.S. and if you did a count, a mass count of of every single police murder, you would get a really startling number. I know your experience with uh, death was already in your life at the time. Um, what were you thinking about uh, in regards to your own mortality? I think I was angry more than anything. 
I think I was angry because I felt I felt as though I hadn't had time to do what I needed to do yet. Right? I was like, there's something I need to do. And I haven't had time to do it yet. I haven't been to Spain. I haven't been to Italy. I haven't been here. And I haven't done that. I was a little, not a little. I was a lot upset because I had, I had had somebody love me in a, in a deep provoking way. I loved someone who lived as though they were dying because he was always knowing that he would die soon. And when you exist with someone who knows that they're living like they're getting ready to die, it's extre- everything is extreme. Every kiss is important. Every, like, you know, let's watch this movie together. Every sunset is important. Every, every moment is important because something could happen at any moment, and it did happen at any moment. And, and so it, I experienced that. Um, the fact that my friend Gabrielle died while she was trying to sell a TV show uh, for spoken word. And um, one of the things that she said in hospice, I don't think I've ever talked to her mom about this, but uh, I am writing about it in my book. While she was in hospice, she had said, like, you know, what she regrets the most is that she hadn't been fucked really well in a long time. She couldn't remember her last great kiss, right? She couldn't, you know, the the moments that make life the extreme beautiful that it is she couldn't recall and that's what upset her the most right she was like there are some things i haven't been able to do and that i will never get a chance to do um she wanted to sell the tv show because that was what she wanted she wanted to be a writer and she wanted to be known for being a writer and she never got that notoriety until after her death um and it's only because we got to film her very last performance on stage Otherwise, you wouldn't know, like, people who know who she is probably wouldn't know who she is if that didn't exist. And so there's there's all these intense moments that I had with death. And so I kind of, everything I do now is related in some way to the idea of death of, if I have to go tomorrow, did I do what I need to do? And if I did not, I have to keep working which is kind of why, like I said, I my schedule hasn't stopped. My schedule has not stopped. People have died this summer. People that are important to me have died. I have a friend who was the same age as me, and, and he died. And I've known him since I was like 13. You know, his, even his wife, who I love and care about, um, she was like, you know, if it wasn't me, it was going to be you. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't hear this at the funeral. (laughs) I can't do this right now. You know, people keep telling me to take my time and to slow down if I need to. And I'm just kind of like, the world is literally on fire. If the end of times come right now, if I have to worry about police officers coming into my house, because now I'm in the public, now I've put my story out there and I'm going to continue to talk as loud as I can, especially when I go to the state uh, legislative floor next year um, in January, February, like, the louder I get, the more you can find me, which makes me more of a target, right? If that's going to happen, I have got to get some things done. I lost my uncle and my grandfather. I saw them both. The last time I saw them both alive, uh, we had dinner at a restaurant, and I happened to take a photo of the place. I don't know why I took a photo of the place. I was just like, this sign looks cool. Taking a photo, 
also happens to be the last time I saw them alive. Right. Um, there's, there's not, time is not, uh, guaranteed. I got sick with the, 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 the thing that's killing people. And I lived, I lived, my friends died. My fiance died. People keep dying and I keep leaving, living. And if I'm going to keep living, I'm going to do something about it. Right. I don't have, uh, the luxury of chilling until something happens. So you're 34 years old. Let's say 25 year old Felita comes into the room, sits down, looks around at your cool bedroom slash office, um, looks at you. What does she say? It's hard because I don't, um, I don't condone trauma for the sake of trauma. Um, but I probably wouldn't change anything because honestly, every step, everything that I've learned in the last 10 years, every loss and every, um, situation that seemed impossible made it even more possible for me to do what I love now and to have the, the willpower to work at the rate that I do. It took me going through a bankruptcy and homelessness again before I lost my job. I lost after going through a bankruptcy and going through losing my apartment that I share with my friend and losing our dog. And, you know, after everything I've already lost and, and gone through because I couldn't keep a job after all of that, um, I worked at Amazon as a janitor with a master's degree. And I got to work and they were like, we don't have we don't have any room for you today. We don't have any work for you today. And that, for some reason, was the tipping point for me. I was just like, how much worse can it get? You don't even have room for me to come and be a janitor. Um. And I went home and I wrote an essay that was the first essay that I've ever had published anywhere. And also as the catalyst for, you know, I got an agent this year. But it took me losing that job. It took me having reached that point to be like, is this not crazy that people who have master's degrees can't even work inside of warehouses because they have a misdemeanor offense and they have, you know, they, they just don't have, I, I couldn't even get a real job because of $25. I was too broke to get a real job. It's the, the lines that pull together and I wouldn't be able to talk to the experience of being impoverished in America and what that looks like on all sides, including inside of uh, the bars and outside of the bars. I couldn't have that experience to talk about what it means to be uneducated and educated. I what it means to be, you know, what that struggle looks like making yourself up from all of those things. If I hadn't had experienced those things, I had to experience them the way that I experienced them so that I could talk about them. You know, I sometimes get a little frustrated with my bio because I'm like, so I am all the things, but really I am all the things. 
I am Afro-Latinx. I am non-binary femme. I am a birth parent. I am previously incarcerated. I am this, that, and the third. I've been an editor and, you know, I've been the person in the slush pile. I've also won the contest and I've published the book after a decade. Like, I am all the things that have been and that could be. And I wouldn't be able to have that conversation in the way that I can have that conversation now if I hadn't experienced this thing. So I guess I would, <laughs> if anything, what I do, I play Adele sometimes. And I, um, I, I play the song Hello from the Other Side. That's my, that's my song that I play sometimes for the motivation. I've been trying to call you for a while. I just want to let you know I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry for all the things you'll have to go through, but, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to prepare you for all the things you have to do and all the things that you need to do. Um, I don't think I would change, I wouldn't change anything. I just, I just, I apologize to her. That's all I can do. What do you think she would think about your life now? <laughs> I'm sorry I've already been emotional so the, this uh, I was already pretty emotional uh, but um, I mean I think even I wouldn't I, I could believe it because I've always wanted to believe it but to see it actually happening, even this morning I woke up and I was complaining about like how crowded my desk is. And I was just like, could you have envisioned that you would actually get what you wanted? And why are you complaining? You said that when the time came for you to like be put on, you would be ready. You would always be ready. If people want to hire you for this, if people want you to come perform here, if people want you to do this, you will always be ready because you've been preparing for it your entire life every moment and so uh she would me and her just both be crying drinking whiskey whiskey is our celebration drink um i got it from my friend gabrielle who told me that when i heard that she had died i was supposed to try my first glass of whiskey so now i try whiskey for like celebration every time we have a win mm. um and if we keep doing the work uh, I feel like the the next win is gonna be the one. Thank you so much. This was this was awesome. This is great. Oh, thank you. This is I one of the most <laughs> probably one of the most meaningful interviews I've had so far. She. my mother's instructions my sisters and i have sewn our palms into our hips clipped our necks 45 degrees our shadows leaning side by side danger with our fat friends and fanny packs we are all of us carrying switchblades in our panties now mama says if you have to walk home alone tonight act like you're crazy talk to yourself they won't want you then so we mastered the art of aggression we mumble it in our sleep 
mumble in our own snap filter laden language gussy up with our acrylic claws and ochre painted chains grow legs that reach out in every direction thick hip spiders crawling down metallic runways and up holly stained carpets strutting across busy highways lying flat under houses washed in snow we learn to step hard through pop-up galleries flexing the second skins of our gowns shut our pelts for our prescriptions we swivel click hop swivel click pop rotating our pedestals for the paying pedestrians crow at the bystanders bark at the hooded eyes of strangers and at some point it is no longer acting we are asking ourselves very important questions is this my home are you my father are these your children how much will you give me for them how much are these your glasses how much is 24 blowjob 10 for my foot up your ass what about my ass what about my ass is this your degree are you a doctor can you help me with this or this right here can you help me are you down with opp can you feel me motherfucker can you feel me for years to my sister's mirror and try to remember my name but my mother has mashed us all and fade the black jeans and ghost tees we are all of us identical fractures in the concrete and i am no longer the woman i would have been we are all of us prepared for the apocalypse for the inevitability of chaos we are all of us a war of our own now a panic etched into the soft metals of our backs lining the hollow barrels of our legs we are all of us shades of kerosene armed aimed ready i am now a weapon prepared to distract and destroy your comfort for my survival it is now second nature to unveil and persevere in this body the program has been fully installed and i am unable to follow commands from unknown service escape escape i am the shrapnel littering your streets i am the vessel living next door i am the sniper drinking wine in your living room the missile seeking comfort in your bed <laughs> 